This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. It takes grit to cover the morning weather like award-winning broadcast meteorologist Amy Sweezy did for 11 years. Amy set the alarm for 2 a.m. every morning to clock in for the 4.30 a.m. news, not because she liked operating on scant sleep. That's something she says she never got used to. She did it because she was passionate about weather. That passion spilled over into regular speaking engagements at schools where she simplified the complexities of meteorology for school-aged children. 2018 was a big year for Amy. Not only was she awarded Broadcaster of the Year by the National Weather Association, she also received accolades for her first children's nonfiction book, Let's Talk Weather, which provides a behind the scenes look at how broadcast meteorologists gather information and work to keep people safe during dangerous weather. In 2018, Let's Talk Weather was chosen as the book of the year by Creative Child Magazine in the educational books for kids category. And in 2019, the Next Generation Indie Book Awards named Let's Talk Weather a finalist in three separate categories, children's nonfiction, educational nonfiction, and science nature environment. We are so glad to have Amy here with us today to discuss her journey of harnessing her expertise and passion for meteorology to becoming a published author of children's books. Thank you so much, Amy, for being here with us today. We're so grateful. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate being part of your exciting new podcast. Yeah, it's it's so great to have experienced authors like you to share your experience. That's how so much of learning is done through shared experience. So before we talk about your experience, Dave and I like to always share an area of our life where we've made progress in the week. And I'll let Dave go first. So Dave, where have you made progress this week? I had a great day yesterday. I had not had a string of good days, but I was able to knock out two chunks and one chunk was writing the first movement in a ghostwriting project that you and I are working on, and and you just need a t time to do that. I run two, you know, run two businesses now, and it's very rare that I get chunks of time, and it's really hard to set that aside given all the craziness. So yesterday I just knocked it out, and then it, so I had two goals yesterday. One complete the first movement, which is basically the introduction of this chapter. And the second was uh, make progress in building the back end of this membership site that you and I are creating called Road Trippers, which we're working on uh, for Journey 66. It'll be a membership uh, community. And, and so I technically I have to I have to get under the hood because we've made the decision not to pay anybody to do this. Long story, I came away after the day yesterday exhausted, but I, I just was like happy because it's not like I completed anything, but I made huge progress. That's great. That's awesome. How about you? So mine has to do with self-care. It's been a rough couple of weeks because it's February. The polar vortex has hit the Midwest. We've had snow day after snow day. I mean, we probably have about two feet of snow out front of our house. And so my typical running trail is just covered in snow. And it's just, it's, I can't go running and walking is really a challenge. But my friend and I, we put on some snow boots and we got out there 
after dark and went for a nice long walk and we just made the most of it. We stepped in the, the um, trails of um, cross-country skiers so we weren't sinking in with every step but it was a good workout and it lifted my spirits. It was um, progress towards getting out of the winter doldrums. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What about you, Amy? Do you have any progress you want to share? Well, I'm just, I'm sitting here feeling down to my bones, the cold air that you're describing. I spent my whole life in the Midwest, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, went to college in Chicago. And so I know that cold. I moved to Florida in 2002. So I'm sitting here looking out my window as you're talking and the blue sky is nice and bright. And I know if I step outside, I think it's about mm, 75 or 80 degrees. Oh, so. oh, Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's see, progress. I, I am such a big believer in a little every day. This way I don't beat myself up, you know, and I don't like put things off and say, okay, I don't have three hours to devote to this big project. So I'm just not going to do it at all. And I'm going to wait six months till I finally have the time to do it. Instead, I'm like, I'm going to write one sentence today. I'm going to pick up one pile today. I'm going to throw out one thing that needed to leave. So my progress that I try to live by my life is just a little bit every day. And if that means a little bit of exercise, a little more than I did the day before, that's good. And if I kind of do one little thing and that way I feel like I'm always moving forward. That is great advice. That's very, that's very helpful way to frame it. Absolutely. So Amy, we want to talk with you just about how you got into weather and just what your draw to meteorology was in the first place, because that's what your books are about. So how about we start there and you give us a little bit of background for us to hear how you started this journey of yours. Okay. Well, and what's interesting is my journey is, well, obviously everybody's journey is very different and very unique, but mine is so not typical of what a usual TV meteorologist will do. Generally, you go to college for four years, you get an undergrad degree in meteorology, and then you start looking for a meteorology job, whether it's on TV or research, behind the scenes, whatever it is. With me, I actually went to college uh, my undergrad degree is in journalism. I wanted to be a newspaper writer and then it kind of transitioned to, I think I might want to do radio. And then by the time I graduated from college, I thought, you know, I want to be a TV news reporter. So I started sending out my resume tapes, which is what you do in TV. You have a, well, back in the day, you had a VHS tape, uh, even <laughs> a format before that, that nobody even knows what it is called three quarter inch tape, but they were big, giant, heavy tapes that cost fortune when you're a poor college kid uh, to mail to these TV stations all over the country. And the news director would of the station would watch your tape, hopefully for the whole thing and not just for three seconds and say, nope, eject, nope, eject. But you don't know. So I sent my tapes out, my resume tape, samples of me doing the news reporting for two years after graduation. I drove all over the country for interviews and nobody would hire me. They um, told me I was too young. I sounded too young. I looked too young. I should get a job behind the scenes. This news is not for you. You should not be on TV. So obviously I could have gotten very discouraged by that. But for whatever reason, I just felt like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. So if it takes a long time, that's okay. So finally, I got a news director to hire me <laughs> two years later in South Bend, Indiana. 
And I started working at the station and quickly realized I did not like weather. Or I did not like news, which is insane, right? Because I've just spent two years trying to get this job. And now suddenly I'm doing it and I'm putting a microphone in a mom's face who's just lost her child and say, you know, how do you feel? And I just, I was like, I can't do this. What am I thinking? I can't, I cannot do this job. So I actually transitioned to weather uh, because I started training with a meteorologist at the TV station where I was working. And he said, you know what? Weather is fun. It's always changing. It's different. It's not the same boring thing all the time. And there's 20% women who are in the field of TV weather. It's 80% men. He's like, if you like this, go back to school and do weather instead. So I started realizing, hey, weather gets to be the good guy. I don't have to be the bad guy on the news side. I can like tell the good news about a story. And um, you can always find good news in weather. So I went back to school, got my meteorology training through Mississippi State University, and the rest is history. Started doing weather full time, went from South Bend to uh, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, West Michigan, worked at the CBS station there for seven years, and then in 2002 moved to Orlando to take the job at the NBC station here, uh, WESH, and I worked at WESH for 18 years before I just left in May of 2020. Wow, that's an incredible career. And I said that you had grit. And I believe that even more after hearing your story of just hunting down that job until you got it after rejection after rejection. It really speaks to your character and who you are. Yeah. So that's or my stupidity, one of the two. I don't know. <laughs> I also love the, uh, the change in direction because I think, you know, you got into what you actually wanted to do and realized, oh my goodness, this isn't exactly what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. And and I think it also takes courage to, kind of, I don't know if the word is pivot, it's such a cliche now, mm -hmm. uh, but to make that adjustment and to actually go back to school, that's just great. I mean, that's that speaks to, uh, really speaks to being nimble and, and really making sure that you uh, don't take the easy way out and sit and be and do news for the rest of your life, even though you, I don't know if you hated it, you probably just didn't enjoy it. Yes, I definitely didn't. And I knew I need to make a change. And I wasn't necessarily positive that weather was the change I wanted. But then as, once I got into it and started doing it, I was like, oh, yeah, I never want to go back to news. I was very happy doing weather. So tell me what it is that you love about weather before we start talking about your book projects. What is it that you love about and you want people to fall in love with about weather? You know, I think just the fact that it always changes, it's not the same thing every day, even though you can kind of get into a rut, especially, you know, here in central Florida. I remember when I first told my friends in Michigan that I was moving to Florida to forecast the weather and they're like, oh, that's so boring. It just, you know, it's sunny, it's hot and it storms every afternoon. And that's sort of the, the stereotype or the cliche here that everybody thinks about Florida weather. But it's not the case. You know, we do get cold. We do have freezes. Yes, it actually has snowed in Florida before. Not like two feet of snow that you have outside your door right now in Chicago. But um, <laughs> we do have cooler fall weather. Yes, we have heat and humidity in the summer. We have hurricanes. We have tornadoes. So we do have a lot of uh, variant in our weather. And it does always change. And it affects everybody. Everybody needs to know the weather. So unlike the news, where it's really easy to turn it off if you're kind of hearing, tired of hearing a particular kind of news, everybody needs the weather. And so I always felt like, okay, what I'm doing matters, especially when a hurricane's coming or when there is you know, a tornado outbreak or something severe, then it becomes much more important than just saying, 
it's going to be sunny and 70 today. Weather is kind of the grand unifier of humanity. I mean, every call we start out with a client often revolves around like, what's the weather like there? You know, it's something uh-huh. that us as human beings. It's so interesting. So when you um, started to do the weather, I read that you started to do a lot of educating in the schools. Like people would call you up to come and help kids understand meteorology. Is that how you kind of got into the realm of writing for children or tell us about that? Yes, absolutely. And and I don't know why or how it started, but for whatever reason, you know, when I first started in this job, school teachers would call when they would get to their weather unit and they would call us. And I guess it's just because we were the ones that they saw. TV weather people are really the only meteorologists that most people know about because yeah. we're on the TV every day. So it just made sense, I think. And then as we would tell and a word would get out, the teachers would say, oh, so-and-so came to my school and visited and talked about the weather. So it kind of started that way. And of course, the TV stations encourage public appearances and getting out in the community because they get credit uh, with the FCC or whoever it is. They get, you know, they have a certain community service hours that they need to fulfill. So it works very well for them to encourage us to go to the schools and visit with kids and guest teach. So it was it was an easy transition. I found that I liked it. In fact, before I got into journalism, I always kind of in the back of my mind when I was younger thought maybe I'd be a teacher someday. So of course I love to talk, which I ended up in a job where I got paid to talk. So that part was cool too. Um, and just the more I honed my talks and figured out what I wanted to teach kids, at the end of every talk I did, there would always be questions and they were always very similar questions. And that's kind of how I would adjust my talk the next time to, okay, these are the things they really want to know versus the boring stuff. Maybe I'm actually telling them. So as I adjusted my talk, it was a very natural thing that I said, you know, I really want to write a book based around my talk, which is explaining to kids how I forecast for for TV, how I do my job. And then I can kind of leave this with them when I leave, it'll always be a companion to my talk where they can then get more information. Because remember back in the day, you know, when I first started this job, we didn't really have email. We kind of did, but people weren't on social media. Kids weren't able to really reach me. Once I left their school, that was it. If they had a question, they couldn't talk to me. So I always wanted to be able to answer their questions in book form, but it took me 20 years before I actually made it happen. (laughs) So you were actually working on your book, really, it sounds like for 20 years, you were taking notes from each presentation that you did. And how how did you collect those ideas? Did you create like folders or how did you do, how did you start to organize your ideas? I started by actually typing out my talk. I had done this talk for so long that it was almost memorized because even though it would change up a little bit based on the age of the kids or based on their questions that they would ask, my basic tenets of, you know, what is precipitation? How do we use the different tools and instruments, cold fronts, warm fronts, all of these things in my talk, um, I just kind of started typing out the entire talk. And then from there, I started trying to organize it into the right order, but then I got stuck. And I was like, I've never written a book. I don't know how to write a book. And I'm sure that's what a lot of people do. They just have all these things that they start writing down. But I'm like, how do I put this into an actual book? So that's when I had to get some help. So I found an author, but she also had worked with a publishing company. 
And it was, I didn't know her personally, but she had published many books. And I just sent her an email and said, hey, can you help me? I have no idea how to do this. And so I hired her essentially to help me edit the book. And she's the one who helped kind of put things in order for me and say, okay, you want to start with this? You want to move to this? But even from there, once I had all of this script ready, the editor who helped me, I had it going. Then I was stuck on graphics. How do you do a children's book? How do you, I mean, I can't draw. I Well, I can draw, but my stick figures are not going to work in a book. <laughs> I wanted it to be real pictures. I wanted it to look like a textbook. But back in this several years ago, we didn't have Getty images. We didn't have like Google where we could just go in and like find images for free and use them and publish them in a book. So really I put this on the shelf 15 years ago and said, someday I'll get to it because I didn't know what to do for my next step. I didn't know how to get the graphics to happen. So I just stopped and started raising my kids and left my book by the wayside. How did you pick it up again? So was that book always in the back of your mind? Was it like nagging or did was there actually years where you didn't think about it that much? Describe how you actually picked it up again and what kind of motivated you or prompted you to pick it up again. It was always in the back of my mind. My kids now, I had started having kids. I have three children and they were getting to school age and they were learning about weather in school. And I'm like, man, I want them to be able to read my book instead. And so what happened was, as I shelved my nonfiction book about weather, I, as my children were in like preschool age, kindergarten, first grade, I decided, you know, maybe I should shift gears. Let me write something different that would be easier to get graphics for, something I could find somebody who could illustrate the book. And then maybe once I figure that part out, I can come back to my other book later. So that's exactly what I did. I ended up writing my fiction book, It Never Ever Snows in Florida. And I remember as a kid, there's a book called My Mother Never Ever Listens to Me about a little girl. She's just mad because her mom's always got her nose in a book and her mom is constantly, you know, ignoring her, she thinks. And that was kind of where the idea came from. It's like, oh, I want to, I'm going to write a book about Florida weather about a kid who's kind of bummed out that it never snows here. And throughout the book, you know, the theme like that one, my mother never listens to me. It's going to be, it never snows in Florida. And so that was how the ideas kind of started swirling. And then I just started writing down ideas. I wanted some meteorology in it. I based it, of course, around my three kids. There's a little boy in the book uh, who has two sisters and I have two boy, two girls and a boy. Um, that was how, that's really what ended up happening. I just put this all together. And then of course I'm stuck again with graphics. So I started talking to this person who talked to this person who talked to that person and just asking questions. How do you do this? How do you, you know, I can't afford thousands of dollars to pay somebody to, to make these pictures for my book. So what do I do? It ended up being that, um, a friend of mine who had written a book, who had self-published an adult novel went to an awards show in the state of Florida, an awards ceremony, and sat at the table with a woman who'd written a children's book. <laughs> so they got to talking. So my friend said, hey, I just met this lady who wrote a children's book. Why don't you write to her, email her, and ask her who she used for an illustrator? So it was one of those just word of mouth things. I got in touch with her. She had self-published a book. She had reached out to an art student in college who was trying to get his portfolio going. 
and he agreed to do my book for very, very cheap because he wanted to use my books in his or my graphics in his portfolio. And that's what we did. It was a very simple process. He got me my pictures. I wrote the story and then ended up self-publishing it through Amazon's site, which is now called uh, was called Create Space at the time. Now it's KDP Publishing. But because I self-published and didn't have an actual publisher help me, I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, I had no idea that your book was supposed to be a certain number of pages and a certain size margin of white around the outside and all those little tips that I know you guys know as publishers. So I made lots of mistakes with that book and ended up republishing it again um, just in the last year following all those rules that I learned after the first time. I did. Is it a color illustration? It is. It is. He did like watercolors. Yeah. Did that increase the cost for you significantly having color illustrations on the interior? It did, but I did not know any better because it was my first one. So yes, when you use Amazon or a self-publishing site, I know there are several and you do add color, it, you do pay by the page, you do pay for how many colors that you use, the type of paper, you guys know all this stuff. And so it, it probably did increase the cost, but I don't know what it would have been. It, it just, to me, it wasn't an option. It wasn't a book that could have black and white photos. Right. Um, it's not a chapter book. It's a picture book. So it needed pictures. Yeah. So regardless of whatever the cost was, I knew that I was writing it for other reasons besides to make a fortune. Um, and I went into it, I think, realistically knowing that I may only make pennies on each book that I sell and that's okay. Tell me about that emotion because I think that that probably drove your next book too, as you went in it for other reasons than to make a fortune. What were the reasons that you motivated you to write these two books? I had done so much research because I'm a planner and I'm a researcher. And so I had done so much research on publishing, self-publishing versus traditional publishing, the pros and cons, read horror stories from people who had done it both ways, trying to figure out what was what was best for me. And so I just went with what made sense for me that first time, since I didn't know any better. But yes, then my second book, then when I finally was like, okay, I've made these mistakes. I still have my weather book sitting there that I want to publish. I have to do it right this time. So I did hire a company. It's a publishing company here based in Orlando, they help a lot of self-published authors put their books together. So I'm still technically self-published. Like I control all the rights to my books but, or to my book, but they helped me find the graphic artist who could get me those pictures that I wanted. And I just paid uh, these people to put the book together for me and they had it printed for me. The downside maybe of this whole process was I had to order a certain number of copies up front. And so, whereas the, the Amazon process is all print on demand, if somebody wants to buy one book, they print one book and send it to them. With this book, I had to buy 2,000 books up front. And now I have boxes of books that I will just continue to sell until 2,000 are sold. Because I, I was trying to find your second book, Let's Talk Weather, on Amazon, and I couldn't find it there. You can only get it on your website. Is that correct? Correct. My publishing company, Story Farm, which is who I used here in Orlando, they were awesome. But yes, because I have, I could sell my book on Amazon. I know there's a way to do that, just like everybody sells products of whatever kind on Amazon, but it just wouldn't be cost effective. So I have my website, amysweezy.com, is you can order all of my books there. 
but you can only get the Let's Talk Weather book through my website. And, you know, I never really answered your question. You mentioned about having other reasons for selling this. Yeah. My, my big reason for doing my books was just for education. I wrote them for my kids and I wrote them for the kids that I continue to talk to in Central Florida who are interested in weather. So I know that that's where most of my book sales are going to be. I didn't plan on having, you know, thousands of books sold online. I mean, if that happens, awesome, great, I'm all for it. But my plan was go to a school and talk about the weather and sell books at a school so I could take them with me in person. And I have found for my audience, which is children, visits and book signings are the best ways that I sell books. Let's talk a little bit more about promotion. Talk about your learning curve with promotion. What did you learn with the first one? And maybe even start with, okay, what do you know now that you wish you had known when you first started? Because I was on TV in Central Florida, I already had a little bit of a built-in audience. I feel like I had an advantage with promotion and marketing more than someone else who you know, people don't know other than just their little limited circle of friends. So if you write a book, you know, and all your friends and family buy it, you sell 100 copies, 150 copies, and you're kind of done. And now you're like, okay, now what? And so then you send out on Facebook, hey, I have a book for sale. But you only have those same 500 people on Facebook that you know, in your circle. So I had a little bit more of an advantage because I had such a big circle of all my viewers in Central Florida. I also had the advantage of going into schools already. I had already been doing that for 15 years. And so when I was able to go in to talk about the weather, then it's like, hey, guess what? This time I have an added bonus. Here's an order form. Wouldn't you like to buy a book? Uh, some schools would buy a book. The school would buy the books for all the kids in the grade, which was really cool. Uh, sometimes only five kids would buy a book. That's cool. Um, I never really had like a limit on or, a, you know, a, a limit. Some people do do that when they go into schools. But yes, I think I was also a li little bit limited with marketing because when you work at a TV station, there's lots and lots of rules. I had pages and pages of rules in my contract about what I could and couldn't do. So that's actually one of the one of the reasons why I left my job eight months ago was because they were really starting to crack down and they did not want me to market my books or talk about my books. Uh, they were not involved with my books in any way. It was just my own side job, side project. And even though it was kind of a win-win because it was kids' books about weather, there was still a lot of gray areas for them with me you know, promoting my book uh, through my social channels. So that was one of the one of the reasons too that made it easy to part ways with my with my TV club. You started a blog. When did you start the blog and how do you use the blog to promote your book? I started the blog long before I had my books published, but I was really far into my weather career at that point. I'd probably been doing weather in Florida for 10 years at this point. And I kind of started it back when everybody started blogging. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to blog every day. And then I had to write weather stories for the website at the TV station. And I had to keep my Facebook page going. And there was just so many other things to write that my blog kind of got pushed to the back burner. And I'm like, oh, I'll keep my amysweezy.com and, you know, keep my subscription going. But I didn't really do a lot with it. Then when my books came along, I was like, okay, this is the perfect opportunity. I'm going to use my website to promote my books, sell my books. But also that's a, I don't know what the right word is. 
it's not my priority on my website. It's my website isn't to sell books. Um, my website is for my blog. It's about me. It's about me getting uh, information out for other jobs that I might get or people who want me to come and speak to their group. But page four or five of my website is, hey, click here to buy my book if you want. So it's really not, I, I'm not really a hard sell sort of person um, just because, again, my goal with my books was not to make a lot of money because I know I'm no John Grisham. Uh, it was to educate kids. And if that happens on the side, that's awesome. But if I can just teach some kids that weather is fun, that science and math is not this awful, boring thing that a lot of kids usually think, then I feel like you know, I've reached my goal. Are you getting paid now for speaking engagements? If you go to a school, is, is that how you're making some money now as that you're not at the news station? My plan when I left was to do that when I left my job and then this thing called COVID happened. <laughs> right, right. And it sort of ruined everything. Right, so now teachers don't really want any guests in the classroom. So I assumed I would be going to three and four talks a week and selling books at all of them. Like that was my plan when I left and I was gonna really go on the author side of things with this weather authority and go in and speak to school. So that was really my big plan. And then when COVID happened, I just kind of had to readjust. So I'm still figuring it out. Uh, I'm not sure. I know I do have author friends who do charge uh, to come and speak. And then they also charge for books. I was never allowed to do that at the TV station. I wasn't allowed to charge. It was always free. So now I'm in this precarious place of I've always spoken for free but now I get zero community service points, if you will, since I'm not working at the TV station anymore. So I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm trying to figure out what that balance is between a school saying no to me because they can't afford to pay me. I don't want to have those kids miss out because the school can't afford me to visit. But how do you make a business out of it? And how do you Exactly. And you know, do I make a book minimum that you have to buy a certain amount of books and I'll come for free? Or do I make it, do I leave it up kind of like an honor system? Hey, where if you have a, a private school and you guys can afford this, then cool, you know, you pay. But if you're a Head Start program or you are, you know, a program that I know, you know, these kids can't, the school maybe can't afford to bring me in, then I'll waive your fee. Right. So I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. I've kind of been stalking other authors' websites to see what they do to try to get ideas. Um, and just kind of brainstorm of what's the best way to handle it. Are you going to be writing another book? Is there going to be um, a follow-up book to Let's Talk Weather? I know yes. you have some activity books, but... Are I, yes, I do have activity books that are, are really companion books to the Let's Talk Weather book. One's for kindergarten through second, and then the other one is third through fifth. And I did go through all the Florida standards for weather and science. So they're, you know, they're good learning tools for teachers too. And for kids, like homeschoolers, especially who are doing weather. But yes, I have a, what I would like to do is a chapter book. I thought I had it finished. And then I sent it to an editor who told me it was terrible. Which you know, <laughs> is part of the writing process. So she gave me so much great helpful advice, but it's too long for an early reader, but it's not long enough to be a true chapter book. It's like six or seven chapters long. Is it fiction it's, or nonfiction? It's fiction. It's a little girl who loves the weather. And she tells everybody at school the weather forecast. She tells her parents, her family, they're all sick of her because she's just always talking about the weather. 
And so it's kind of just her little story. So she's maybe in second or third grade. I'd like to know about your awards. So did you submit your book to these different work? Because that's actually a huge, um, a huge win for you and in being in both the nomination and the award. So I could you talk a little bit about that, how you did that? That's a great it, strength. And did it influence book sales at all? I mean, I think that's the big thing is like, do you, when you get these awards, does it make a difference? Right. Good question. I don't know, since it's kind of a new adventure for me. Probably not. I mean, they say the awards people, of course, the awards that give them out say that it influences it, but I, I don't know. The thing, the biggest thing I learned about awards is you have to enter right away. Most of those, the deadline is it's the year it's published. So if you published a book five years ago, it's too late to go back and win that award. Um, some of these contests maybe go out a year and a half or two years, but that's the max that I ever found. The only reason I knew to enter my book in the Florida Association of Publishers was because remember my friend who sat by a woman at the award ceremony, he had won an award for his book. So I was like, oh, if I write a book, I need to, you know, how do I, how can I enter this? So fortunately, I looked into it right away. There were lots of other contests I entered and did not get nominated, did not win. In fact, I put my nonfiction book, It Never Ever Snows in Florida, in the same awards for the Florida Awards, and it did not even get nominated. Hmm. My Let's Talk Weather the next year won gold. Then when I republished my fiction book, remember where I had to go back and make all those little changes like it was the right margins, the right font, the right number of pages, then I got the nod from the award. So I think part of the reason I didn't win wasn't because my story was bad. It was because my book didn't look, it looked like a self-published book. That is powerful. And that's something we talk a lot about on this podcast is if you're going to self-publish, it can't smell like a self-published book. Right. And so sometimes that lesson is learned the hard way where you do it wrong. I mean, and I'm all about learning through mistakes because I that's how I learn is through pain. But if you can get it right like you do, there can be a huge payoff if you can learn how to make a self-published book look really professional. So good yeah. for you for doing that, for persevering and taking, and it was an, another investment, right? To do it right. Yes, I had to re, yeah, I had to republish it. And yes, I hired a company that worked with children's books who could make sure that all of those little T's were crossed and I's were dotted, things that I didn't always, you know, didn't know about as an author. It could be too, though, that since that one did win gold, that maybe when that book came by the next time, they recognized your name. Sometimes that could, that may have happened. I wonder. Maybe. Like, oh, yeah. We know her. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 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 I'm interested in the editor's comments on the book you're working on currently. What was the one thing that she said that you went, oh, she's so right? Okay. Well, this is the, so I'm like, am I, is it weird that I'm hesitant to talk about it? Cause I don't want somebody to steal my idea. <laughs> Maybe the question is if there was there one thing that the editor said that you could that was helpful that you could say without giving away your idea? She told me that in my story, you can't have, in children's literature, you can't have the adults solve the problems. And my little girl was being teased at school and the teacher stepped in 
And then she was being teased at school again. And the TV meteorologist who visited their classroom to speak stepped in. And so the adults were always stepping in, in my story, to help the little girl and to solve the problem. And she said, you have to have the kids learn how to solve their own problems. So I think it's just a matter of adjusting the wording where maybe she can still get the ideas from the adults who can help her come along in her life. Um, but it's not the adult that steps in and actually solves the problem for them. That's a huge insight and a huge value to any of our listeners who are writing children's books. Thank you so much. That is actually really, really powerful. And I didn't even realize I was doing it, you know, because of course I'm the mom writing the book. I'm the educator. I'm the meteorologist trying to teach something. And so as I'm writing, of course, I have the adults solving all the problems because that's what we do, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a huge shift. And mm -hmm. I can't wait to see what you do with it. Absolutely. Thank you. I, my plan was, you know, after I quit my job, I was going to write it last summer and then life happens. And yeah. so it's still sitting there. I just have to be brave enough to get out those notes again and go through them. And yeah. <laughs> Feedback is not always easy to receive, but it's when you can step back and then come back to it, it can be so productive. So right. sometimes you just need to step back and realize this isn't personal. This doesn't mean you're a bad writer. It's just constructive feedback. I think one of the things that helped me with the feedback was working in television for so long. You know, we got feedback from consultants, from bosses, then with social media from viewers. I mean, everybody offered up their opinion about how much they hated your hair, what they thought about your dress, your forecast was right or wrong, usually wrong. So lots of feedback that you had to just step back and take the personal part out of it and consider the source, take from it what you will, throw the rest away. You know, what can you learn from this? And then, you know, if 14 people are telling you the same thing on the same day, maybe there's some validity to that. But if just one or two random people say something awful, you just let go of it. So it's sort of the same thing I felt like with the, the feedback from, from my writing. It's not me personally that's a terrible writer. It's just that I need to shift some things in the story. That's great. Well, I think that's a wrap. You've been so incredibly generous with your insights oh, and you. your story. I really admire you for just learning as you've gone through these different processes of, you know, how do I promote my book? How do I create a, a business, a speaking business out of this? How do I fix a published book that a book that's already been published? So I feel like you've really illustrated perseverance and learning and growing, which is so important, I think, for every writer. So thank you for being so vulnerable and honest today. Well, thank you. I so appreciate being part of this. I want to turn to our words of the episode just to close out this episode. And I will go first. How about that, Dave? And oh, my great. word of the week is crepuscular. And my friend and I, who I went on a walk with this past week, we often would go out for runs in the evening and it was the crepuscular hour, which is re relating to twilight. So it's always when like the bunnies are out bouncing around and the deer come out and it's a very magical snow whitey moment in the day. And so we always talk about going for our crepuscular trots. And so I love the crepuscular hour. It's my favorite time of the day, I think, especially during summer when the fireflies are out. So my word is crepuscular. How about you, Dave? What's your word of the day? That is an awesome <laughs> word. I don't even know if I've ever even heard of that word. Really? Oh gosh. I've yeah. never, 
I definitely have never used the word. It's a weather word, you know. Is it? Yeah, I was wondering. It's a weather word. Crepuscular rays are the little, the sunshine rays that kind of go straight up. You'll see from a cloud or straight down. And it's just the sun shining off the, the clouds. Oh, I love that. See, okay. I thought that maybe you'd know. <laughs> I thought you could come because it was a weather word. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Dave? What's your word of the week? Word of the episode? So my word of the episode is feral. F-E-R-A-L. F-E-R-A-L. Feral. It's a simple enough word. And it refers to, usually it, it refers to like an animal in a wild state, especially after escape from captivity or, or domestication. So you've heard of feral cats, like cats that somehow they get lost or something, end up in the wild and they're feral, they're wild, they live out there. So here is an, uh, an example of using the word, applying it to a man. So this comes from my favorite writer, Rick Bass who wrote this in his book, The Traveling Feast. Rick is, a, is an outdoor writer and lives in Northwestern Montana and has written so much fiction and nonfiction and won tons of, tons of awards. And, but in this book called The Traveling Feast, he goes around to all of his favorite literary writers who have influenced him and cooks them a meal and discusses literary writing. It's a great idea. So he tells the stories of like 10 chapters. So this is his sentence in which he uses the word feral. Anyone could see he was a man falling apart, a humpbacked wolverine, feral, done for. His marriage was delaminating. He was unemployed and unemployable. Wow. What an image, Dave. That is great writing right there. That is great writing. I have a total visual of what this guy looks like and delaminated that is such a great way to describe something I would never have come up with that phrase in my own it's amazing yeah that's a great I can even imagine like you know how the lamination starts to fray on exactly. the edge? you know yeah. <laughs> I love it so what about you Amy do you have a word you want to share you don't have to no pressure I will I will go with a weather word because you know that's easy and it's in my world um, one of my favorite weather words has always been coalescence. Coalescence is a way that raindrops form. And the way a raindrop happens is the moisture in the atmosphere sticks to other stuff. So like dust particles or any kind of dirt or pollution or anything that's in the air, the moisture sticks to those. And that's how you have a raindrop form as the moisture gets bigger. And the process of that is called coalescence, where all of these things coalesce together and become a raindrop. So I've always kind of liked that word to describe teamwork and how important it is to surround your, you know, people can't do things just all by themselves. It takes a village to help raise your kids, the school, the teacher, the church, the neighbors, the friends, the family. And even in something like this, just meeting you guys, with this podcast, but we take ideas from each other. We come together as a team and I'm going to be a better writer. I'm going to write a better book because of things that I've learned from you and things that we've shared. So I really appreciate that you guys invited me to be on your podcast today. It's been a complete pleasure. And like I said, you've just shared so richly with us. So thank you again, Amy. And I think that's a wrap. Dave, do you want to talk a little bit about our road trippers? So Road Trippers is our membership community, and right now it's free. So if you go to Facebook, 
And we have a closed group there called Road Trippers. You can just Google it, not Google it. You can go on Facebook and search it. You don't Google it. You won't find it on Google. Go to Facebook and search Road Trippers. It's one word. And there'll be several options. And one of them is our closed group. Just hit there and we'll let you in. And we do a Q&A every Tuesday at 3.30 p.m. Central Time. So you can jump on and Melissa posts the Zoom link. And it's just a question and answer time for anybody who's writing a book, anything on writing, book promotion, self-publishing or traditional publishing. We've had some really, really great sessions. We're just building this right now. And I think it will be either April or May will actually launch uh, our membership community. But right now, we'd love for you to just jump on. And and when you do, you will be invited and you'll receive the Zoom link. So jump on Road Trippers and we hope to see you online. That's right. We will love to see you. So I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.